No matter how much sin has blinded us in our depravity, all men everywhere at all times have an awareness of God. God has stitched His greatness into the fabric of the human mind so that His majesty is instinctively recognized when one views the created order. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. Johns County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Well, I want you to take your Bibles this morning, as you well know, and be turning to the book of Romans again, Romans chapter 1. This morning, we want to look at verses 18 through 32, the title of the message, The Dread of God's Wrath. And um, I might be a little apprehensive to preach such a long section of Scripture, but I hope by the end of this you'll understand why I want to look at all of these verses in one shot. There is a certain way that Paul has written this for us to see in one setting. And so it would be my job to show that to you, and by the end of our time together you'll be able to walk away having a far deeper grasp of uh, the depth of our depravity on the one hand, but also the goodness and the grace of God. So please stand to your feet in honor of the reading of God's Word. I'll begin reading in verse 18. Paul writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up and the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God, God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. 
May God bless His Word. Please be seated and let's ask Him to be with us as we study this passage. Father, as we come to You to study Your Word, we pray, first of all, for clarity so that we understand with our minds. But Father, we also pray for surety. Surety in the Gospel of Your Son alone. And we also pray for duty. A duty to obey all that Your Word tells us. We pray this for Your glory. For the glory of Your Son, our King and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray these things in His blessed name. Amen. Paul's next section, as he writes to the Romans, is a section that deals with the dread of God's wrath. This next larger section is really speaking about the universal nature of sin affecting and infecting all of men, both Jews and Gentiles, and the accompanying condemnation of God. This larger section begins in verse 18 and goes all the way to chapter 3 and verse 20. In these verses, Paul tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that there is none righteous, no, not one, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. And verse 18 is really the summary verse. This is a verse that is speaking about God's wrath being poured out from heaven against Jews and Gentiles, all people everywhere. As Paul will later say in chapter 2 and verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil the Jew first, and also the Greek. Now, Paul will begin first by showing that Gentiles are exposed to God's wrath. This is probably because Gentiles may object to this and think that they're off the hook since they don't have a privileged relationship with God. But Paul will go on to at length in chapter 2, for example, in verse 14, say this, that when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written in their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So Gentiles are not off the hook, and Jews aren't off the hook either. Jews might think that they're off the hook because they are all the ones who have been entrusted with the very oracles of God, chapter 3 and verse 2. But as we saw last week, God's covenant faithfulness has always been contingent on the faith of the individual, whether Jew or Gentile. One person gets into the kingdom of God at a time. It's like a turnstile. You don't come in by groups. God does not have one favored group over another. So even the Jews are really to no greater advantage than Gentiles. And Paul will admit this in chapter 3, verse 9. Are we Jews any better off? No, Paul says, not at all. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Now, Paul's linking what he says in this next big section, chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, and verse 20, to what he has just said. It's somewhat of an interruption. If you remember back in verse 17, he speaks about the righteousness of God that has been revealed. And he interrupts all of that. It is a necessary interruption. He's going to come back to that theme of the righteousness of God in chapter 3, verse 21, where he says, but now the righteousness of God. He gets back on track in chapter 3 and verse 21. But you have here in verse 18, going all the way to chapter 3 and verse 20, this sort of very important and significant interruption. An interruption that is so significant that if you miss it, you will not have an accurate understanding of the gospel. You could engage with Paul, I suppose, in a sort of dialogue. 
Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And you say, why not? And Paul says, because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And you say, how so, Paul? And Paul says, because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness only comes to the believer by faith. And you say, why is this necessary, Paul? And he says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And you say, but Paul, how have people suppressed the truth? And Paul says, well, what can be known about God is plain to them. God has shown it to them ever since the creation of the world and the things that are made so that they are without excuse. Here is the point. There are two revelations. Verse 17, there is the righteousness of God that is revealed from faith to faith. Verse 18, there is the revelation of God's wrath from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. There is the gospel, which is the good news of God's righteousness, and there is the judgment or the wrath of God, which is the bad news, which is terrible. One of the best pieces of news I ever received was when before the church with friends and family gathered in a huge sanctuary, the preacher looked at Corey and I and he said, you are now husband and wife. I remember the feeling of that moment. I felt like I was at the top of the world, one of the happiest moments in my life, so much so that I can hardly even remember the reception after. But I do remember changing my clothes after the reception And I was looking down at my hand and I saw how different my hand looked because of my wedding band. I was a changed man. I was a married man. My status had been changed. There was no bad news anyone could tell me at that moment except for the fact that my father-in-law rushed in and he said that he had lost the keys to the getaway car. Now the getaway car was an important car because that car was to take us to my car which was hidden in a place I wasn't even aware of so that my groomsmen, there were seven, eight, nine of them, they wanted to trash it and uh, no one told me where they hid my car so that I could honestly tell them I didn't know where it was. But I just remember looking at my father-in-law with a huge smile, and I remember him thinking, why are you smiling at me? And the, the thought to me was, well, we'll just walk to our honeymoon. I mean, we'll just take a cab. It's not that big of a deal. There was no bad news anyone could give me that would interrupt that good news. Well, as it turns out, my father-in-law found the keys. But I was convinced because of my changed status, because of that ring on my finger, the greatest news ever, that no bad news could topple over that. Now, I understand that there is no illustration that can adequately capture the good news of salvation, the doctrine of imputation that we spoke about last week, where God declares the sinner righteous. But the point to see is that there are two revelations, one of bad news and one of good news. One is a revelation of God's righteousness, verse 17. One is a revelation of God's wrath, verse 18. One is a revelation of renewal and reformation and hope. The other is a revelation of rebellion and revolution against Almighty God, and that is terrible news. Now, Paul gives the good news first in verse 17, 
because he's not trying to evangelize the Romans. They're already Christians. There's a church full of Christians. And you remember that one of the reasons Paul is writing this letter is that he wants to raise financial support to go to Spain. These people did not know the Apostle Paul personally. They had never heard him preach the gospel. And so really, this is a sermon that he puts on paper a proper gospel presentation. And he cannot properly present the gospel apart from the bad news. And that's where he moves to next. Now, in our evangelism to the lost, we are to share the bad news first. We are to present God's law to the sinners so they sense their brokenness, that apart from faith in Christ, there is no hope. They need to see that they are sinners. We have to get them lost before they can get saved. They have to see the bad news before they can understand the good news of the good news. And until man is aware of the perfect demands of God's law, A sinner will not appreciate what Christ has done in dying on the cross. That's why Paul, when he gets to the end of all this, in chapter 3 and verse 20, he says, By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes a knowledge of sin. And that is what Paul is doing here in chapter 1 and chapter 2, all the way into chapter 3. He is presenting to us the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the reality of God's law, and the reality that all men and women and boys and girls, Jews and Gentiles, barbarians, slave and free, have all broken God's law. God is a God of self-revelation. He has revealed His righteousness, verse 17. He has revealed His wrath in verse 18. He has revealed in verses 19 and 20 His eternal power and divine nature, His invisible attributes which are seen in creation. He has revealed the saving power of God unto salvation to all who believe in verse 16. But here He is revealing His wrath against all sinners apart from God's sovereign grace we would all have God's wrath continually upon us. And he begins by speaking about God's wrath to the Gentiles in verses 18 through 32. And even as he describes God's wrath on the Gentiles, there is sort of this pattern of creation, fall, and redemption that is reflected and parallel with the Genesis narrative. For example, Paul refers to the creation of the world in verse 20. He even classifies in verse 23 creatures in the same language that Moses did in the book of Genesis, birds and animals and creeping things. He uses words like glory and image and likeness, which are all used in the creation account. He speaks about humanity's knowledge of God. You have in the Genesis account the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You have here man proclaiming himself to be wise in verse 22, which was exactly what Eve was enticed by by Satan, to be wise by eating the fruit. You have here the exchange of God's truth for Satan's lie in verse 25. And of course you have man's rebellion, man's revolution resulting in death, verse 32, the deserving of God's judgment. So all of this reflects the creation account because what Paul is describing here, although he is focusing on the Gentiles, is really true of Jews as well. The story of Adam's plunge into sin and its consequences is the story of mankind. And when you get to Romans 5 and chapter 12, that's what Paul says. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all because all sinned. 
I think it's also clear, and scholars have adequately and abundantly shown, that Paul is also quoting the apocryphal book of wisdom, especially chapters 13 and 14. Uh, This apocryphal book was essentially a Hellenistic Jewish polemic against idolatry and immorality, and the themes of idolatry and immorality are seen throughout this passage as Paul deals with the sin and the apostasy and the degeneration of the Gentile world, a world that is divorced from the recognition of God's lordship over creation. Paul is painting in very broad brushstrokes. He wants us to see on the one hand that the law of God is the great leveler or equalizer. It puts every man on the same plane because when you look into the law of God, it's like a mirror that reflects back to you your ugliness, your unrighteousness, your ungodliness. And on the other hand, he wants to speak about the good news, the great leveler or the great equalizer, that all of God's saved people has no distinctions. There is no distinction between Jew or Greek. All who are saved have come to Christ the same way, they are saved by the same power, and no one is saved by their good works. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. He's bringing about God is a new creation, and he's calling his people to himself, bringing them into the kingdom through the new birth, brought about by the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom. And that is what Paul is preaching. I believe that what you find here, beginning in verse 18, is a sampling or a representation of the exact sort of sermons Paul would preach when he went to the streets among the Athenians, when he went into the synagogues and he preached to Jews. He always began with the bad news of God's judgment. And he's putting it on paper so that the Romans can see he holds to an orthodox gospel. And these are heavy verses. But reflecting on the wrath of God revealed in the world because of sin reveals that we have broken God's law. And this bad news drives us to the good news of the grace of God in Christ and the gospel. In other words, seeing how bad we are helps us to see how good God is and how powerful He is to save sinners like us. And so it is a healthy thing to reflect on the wrath of God. And there are three aspects of God's wrath that we discover in this passage. And we're going to start by moving slow. Then we'll sort of understand where we're going and we'll pick up some speed. But there's three aspects of God's wrath in verses 18 through 32. First, we want to look at the purity of God's wrath. Secondly, the people of God's wrath. And third, the pattern of God's wrath. The purity of God's wrath is seen in that opening statement in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. We see it once, right out of the gates, why we are in need of an alien righteousness. Verse 17, it is because apart from Christ's righteousness, which comes to us by faith, verse 17, without that righteousness covering us, the wrath of God is covering us. For, that word for, links what Paul says here to what he said in verses 16 and 17 about the gospel of God's righteousness. That gospel of God's righteousness is necessary because of the inescapable reality of the wrath of God, the wrath of God that has been revealed. That stands in contrast to the righteousness of God that is revealed in verse 17. 
and that word revealed, apokalupto is the Greek word, it's the same word that's used in verse 17, and both of these words are in the present tense, because it is conveying a simultaneous revelation. On the one hand, God is constantly revealing his gospel through the word of God, through preachers of the gospel, and on the other hand, from heaven, is constantly coming his wrath. And notice, it is the wrath of God. It's not someone else's wrath. It is the wrath of God, and it comes from heaven. In other words, God is the active author of it. It flows from his just and righteous throne in heaven, where he pours down constantly on recalcitrant sinners his wrath. And apart from Christ's righteousness covering us, we will be showered with the continual cursings, not the blessings of God. You see, God is a God of grace. That's the good news. But he's also a God of wrath. That's the bad news. It's identified there in verse 18, the wrath of God. That means it comes directly from God's hands. His wrath, his orgi, is the Greek word from which we get our English word orgy. But whereas man's passions are demonstrated in unrighteous ways, God's passions are displayed in righteous ways. We could say that God has a holy passion against sin. God's anger is kindled in complete purity against sin. God's anger is not like your fits of rage when you lose your temper or when I lose my temper. No, this is God's righteous and pure and holy wrath. It comes from a pure place, God's heaven. It comes from pure hands, God who is holy and righteous, and it comes down on earth. Here is how some people describe the wrath of God. One commentator calls it a holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the opposite of his holiness. Another one calls it his righteous anger. Calvin calls it the vengeance of God. Another writer calls it the judgment of the world. John Stott calls it God's reaction in revulsion to sin. Another writer calls it the deeply personal abhorrence of evil by God. Another, the settled and active opposition of God's holy nature to everything that is evil. And my favorite definition is John Stott's, where he calls it in another place, holy hostility to evil. This is the wrath of God. And when we think of the wrath of God, we usually associate it with the end of time. But history has shown time and time again that what Paul is speaking about here in verse 18 is God's active pursuit to inflict wrath upon sinners of all sizes, shapes, and colors. For example, Psalm 2. Do homage to the Son, kiss Him, lest He become angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath may soon be kindled. That's present language. In other words, the coals of God's wrath are always hot, and they are ready to be kindled into a fire of wrath that He pours down from heaven. And Psalm 2 also says that those who scoff at Him, God will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury. I mean, God literally will breathe out the fire of His holy wrath upon sinners in our day. This is not something in the past. This isn't just the God of the Old Testament or the God of antiquity. This is the God of today. Psalm 76, but you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? 
For the heavens and from the heavens you utter judgment. Or Psalm 90. For we are brought to an end by your anger, God. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. It's this sort of wrath that caused God to destroy the whole world with a flood. It is this sort of wrath that was unleashed against the nation of Egypt for holding Israel in bondage. It is this wrath of God that was inflicted on specific cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, for their sin. And the prophets were crystal clear about God's active and continual wrath. Isaiah says, By the fury of the Lord of hosts, the land is burned up, and the people are like fuel for the fire. Jeremiah says, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger, my wrath, will be poured out on this place, on man, on beast, on the trees of the field, on the fruit of the ground, and it will burn and not be quenched. Ezekiel says, Their silver and their gold is not able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They cannot satisfy their appetite, nor can it fill their stomachs, for their iniquity has become an occasion of stumbling. And of course, in our own day, man tries to ignore the reality of God's pure and personal and active wrath. And there is a sense in which there is a cosmic, climactic day coming of God's wrath. Paul speaks about it in chapter 2 and verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because your hard and impenitent heart are storing up wraths for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed? But that is a future day. Here in verse 18, Paul is speaking about the present, consistent Wrath of God. Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, said this, Is God so infinitely holy? Then see how unlike to God sin is. No wonder, therefore, that God hates sin. Being so unlike to Him, nay, so contrary to Him, it strikes at His holiness. And yet people today say God is love. God is mercy. But there needs to be a divine balance. He reveals The righteousness of God in verse 17, the grace and the mercy and love of God. But here in verse 18 is the wrath of God from heaven, the judgment of God. And man doesn't view God's wrath as flowing from his holiness because man doesn't have a high view of God. He he doesn't view the righteousness of God being as righteous as he should. But until man sees that God's wrath is actually part of his attribute of righteousness... That God has a right to demonstrate wrath. In order for him to be consistent with his character, then that person will always be inconsistent in their view of God. They will never view God rightly. And this leads many to propose a God who is full of love, but never full of wrath. This is a God of their own making. And it's manifested in phrases like, God loves everyone equally. Or God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. Or God loves you just as you are. Or God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And yet others propose by trying to explain away verse 18 and the wrath of God, they describe it as an impersonal wrath. The cause and effect principle operating in God's universe. This is the God of deism. Where God just establishes a set of principles, He sets them in motion, and then He walks away and, and grabs a cup of coffee... Humming the Baptist hymn, the Savior is waiting. 
A Savior is waiting to enter your heart. Why don't you let Him come in? There's nothing in this world to keep you apart. What is your answer to Him? Time after time He has waited before, and now He is waiting again to see if you're willing to open the door. Oh, how He wants to come in. Now that is not the God of the Bible. That sort of God was created in the Enlightenment, and there's really nothing enlightening about that sort of God, because that sort of God is not much different than the, the pagan gods of the Greeks, who were too hoity-toity or sadity to bother with the mortals of man on earth. You see, you'll never understand the wrath of God until you understand that the revelation of God's wrath is linked by Paul in the book of Romans to the measure of wrath that he pours out upon his son upon the cross. There is no way to understand the gospel apart from understanding God's pure and rightful and righteous and personal and active and continual wrath. It is a reality that you can't escape. And nobody in the world can escape. It is a reality that we must come to terms with if we want to have a relationship with God. But as shocking as the reality of God's pure, continuous wrath may be, it's not an indirect wrath. It's a flame coming down from heaven, not just on earth in a general way, but on people. And so we move from the purity of God's wrath, number two, to people of God's wrath. Notice the rest of verse 18. Notice where this wrath is directed. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Here it is. Against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, although all commentators are not agreed, I think we have here a reflection of a violation of the two tables of the law as Paul speaks about sin. God's wrath is poured out against ungodliness. The Greek word is asabiah. This is speaking about impiety towards God or sins against God, first table of the law. And then unrighteousness is adikia. That's a different Greek word which speaks about injustice toward man, sin against man, a violation of the second table of the law. Paul is being very comprehensive here to say that God is not happy with how we treat him. God is not happy how we treat our fellow man. We have broken both tables of God's law. And James 2.10 says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of violating all of it. So just as it was true with our first parents being left to the freedom of their own wills from the estate wherein they were created by sinning against God, they and we too are characterized by ungodliness. That is a perversion of religion, idolatry, listening to the lie of Satan, serving his interests instead of God's, and unrighteousness. This is participating in a slew of sins that harms those around us. And then, as if transgressing the first and second tables of the law, idolatry and immorality aren't enough, God also poured out His wrath on people. Notice verse 18, because by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. The, the word suppressed is catechine. It, it means to hinder or to detain or even to incarcerate, to stifle, to obscure. So here's the picture. Whereas God reveals His wrath, He uncovers and exposes His wrath, man suppresses or stifles or obscures God's truth. God uncovers His wrath and man covers up God's truth. Aletheia is the Greek word for truth. It refers to an innate awareness of right and wrong. Paul will speak about this in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. 
But whereas the revelation of God's wrath is continual, the, the Greek word revealed is in the present tense in verse 17, present tense in verse 18, so too man's suppression of God-given truth is continual. The word suppress is in the present tense. So this isn't just a one-time covering up of the truth we know about God. It is a continual, moral, depraved, wicked covering of truth. Psalm 14.1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And what does the psalmist say? The psalmist goes on to say they are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, there is none who does good. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 15, let me quote it again. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Earlier I spoke about people blindly denying the reality of God's wrath, but here in verse 18, the rest of it is, is describing the reality of denying God altogether. As God's wrath is constantly being poured down from heaven on sinners, our depravity runs so deep that we continually spurn God and we scoff at God. But notice, Paul's indictment against humanity paints an even darker picture than the one I just explained because notice verse 19, Paul goes on to say, for, that's an explanatory word, for what can be known about God is plain to them. You know what that means? It means that God is given even to those who have never heard a Bible verse or a gospel presentation, a certain knowledge of himself. And in fact, he has shown it to them in an active way because, the text says, God has shown it to them. The picture you need to have in your mind is that man is so wicked that even though God takes our heads into his own hands, as a father would a child to show a better and a safer path to go, we resist the force of his hand, we pull away, and we go our own way. And what Paul is saying here is that even Gentiles, who don't have the light of the law of God, they still suppress the light that was given to them. There is still a sense in which God has shown himself to Gentiles who have never heard the word of God. In fact, the situation is really far worse than what I'm even describing. As a good father would do, our father turns our heads toward him so that we can see his glory. And what do we do? We suppress the revelation of himself by shutting our eyes and foolishly thinking like a child that he's not there and if we can't see him, he can't see us and can't harm us. That's the picture Paul is painting. And the knowledge of himself that he shows us is not salvation knowledge. It's not salvation knowledge. It's the general or natural revelation of himself in creation. Notice verse 24. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Now, there are things about God in the natural order of the universe that we cannot know by the natural order of the universe. But that's not what Paul's speaking about here. When he says, for, at the beginning of verse 20, that's explaining the phrase in verse 19, what can be known about God is plain. And what is it? It's his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature. Since God himself is invisible, so too are his attributes. And yet, what Paul's saying here is that all men are still aware that God exists. John 1.18 says that 
God Himself no one has ever seen. Colossians 1.15, the Son is the image of the invisible God. 1 Timothy 1.17, God is the King of kings, the invisible God. And yet this invisible God, with invisible attributes, has made Himself known. That's the point to see. Through His eternal power, His divine nature, which Paul says have been clearly perceived, ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. In other words, the otherwise invisible, unknowable God has made himself through his attributes and thus himself visible and knowable. And thus goes the argument for intelligent design. God's creation, his world, his universe has a million clues pointing to his existence and what has been made ever since the beginning of time as we know it. You see, what Paul is expressing here is God's revelation of himself through creation. The attributes of his eternal power and divine nature, which cannot be seen, actually are seen. This is a literary device known as a paradox, because what is asserted appears to contradict itself. But what we see, what we see what is unseeable in the evidence of creation is what Paul is saying. God's handiwork. So that all men, at all times, in all locations, have clearly perceived that there is a God. This is intellectual cognition. His eternal power simply refers to the sum total of all his attributes. That he has left his fingerprints on all he has created, including the knowledge of his power and his wisdom and his goodness and his order, his creation of the cosmos, his sustaining of the cosmos, his divine nature expresses the same reality that while the physical eyes observe the glory of God's universe, the invisible eyes of soul and mind deduce that there's no way we could have gotten here by chance, that a creator God exists and that he is eternal and we are not because we die. But God is eternal. Someone had to be here in the beginning to put all of this in motion to create this world. And so then Paul concludes that this renders man, notice the end of verse 20, without excuse. God holds all men culpable for what they see with the eyes of their souls and perceive with their minds to be true to a man. Every human being. You know, as a young girl, a disease caused Helen Keller to be without sight and hearing and speech. But it was because of Ann Sullivan's relentless and selfless work that Helen learned to communicate through touch and even a semblance of talking. And when Ann Sullivan first helped Helen Keller, she told her about God. But it's interesting because Helen's response to her teacher was that she already knew about God. She knew that God existed instinctively. She just didn't know what his name was. And in the same way, no matter how much sin has blinded us in our depravity, all men everywhere at all times have an awareness of God. God has stitched his greatness into the fabric of the human mind so that his majesty is instinctively recognized when one views the created order. In nature, we see something of God's nature. That's the point. The Belgic Confession 
commenting on Romans 1.20 says that the creation, preservation, and government of the universe is before our eyes. A most excellent book wherein all creatures, great and small, are as so many characters leading us to see clearly the invisible things of God, even as everlasting power and divinity. As the apostle says, all these things are sufficient to convince men and to leave them without excuse. So, from what can be observed in the smallest of creatures through a microscope, to viewing the stars and all their courses with a telescope, to viewing all of creation in one glance from satellite images thousands of feet above the earth's surface, there is no excuse for anyone to claim God doesn't exist, an atheist. And there is no excuse for anyone to say, well, I just don't know if God exists. God is continually revealing himself to man through the created order. And while I think it can be sometimes helpful to use Thomas Aquinas's so-called five arguments for the existence of God, which are found in the Summa, I don't think that's where we start with the secular atheist. We need to appeal to the secular atheist's already innate knowledge of God. An argument for God's existence should never begin at a place of neutrality. That's giving up too much ground at the beginning of the discussion. We need to charge forward with the sword of God's word and appeal to the secular atheist what he knows is true, but he is suppressing. And I love the illustration that Doug Wilson gives. Doug Wilson says, The secular atheist is holding down with all of his strength an overinflated beach ball underwater. And what you need to do is nudge his arm. And you need to say, come on, man, you know that beach balls exist. In other words, argue in such a way that will cause God to rise to the surface. Confront the conscience with the common sense reality that there's no way this world got here with a big bang. Make a big bang in his beach ball by revealing the glory of God in a sunrise or a sunset, the fixed order of the heavenly bodies, the growth of a plant from a seed to a beautiful tree, the skill of birds building nests and always finding food. This is the glory of God all over creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. There's no lack of words. And night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Who's sustaining this creation that the secular atheist is living in anyway? Well, it's the same one who fashioned it. You see, this is not a science lesson. This is a Bible lesson. Because it's not as if God shows up only every 3,000 years or so. No, the evidence of His existence and His presence is in ample abundance. Everyone knows it. Calvin, quoting him famously from his institute, says, Ever since the creation of the universe... God has brought forth signs whereby He shows His glory to us. Whenever and wherever we cast our gaze, wherever you cast your eyes, there is no spot in the universe wherein you cannot discern at least some sparks of His glory. The light of nature and man. And Calvin goes on to describe 
this world of God's providence and power is a theatrum gloriae, that is a theater of glory, where all aspects of life, from work to worship to play, are meant to glorify God. And creation, as Calvin says, is like God's dazzling theater. But you know what man has done? Man has gone up on the stage. He has shoved God out of the way. He has ignored God, and he has sung and danced his way into sin. This is the reality of man suppressing the knowledge of God. And this is the reason God pours out his wrath on people. Because people refuse to glorify God. This is the chief sin of man, the medicine. Because the chief end of man is to what? Glorify God. So the chief sin is not giving God glory. And general revelation, as verse 20 says, holds man without excuse. This is not natural theology. You cannot be saved by looking at nature. This is general as opposed to specific and special. This is natural, not supernatural, but it is a reality. God's clues of His existence are all around us. Now that you understand that God's wrath is directed against people who are ungodly and unrighteous, we can now move on to the third point. But before we go there, Someone may ask about the tribal chief in the jungle who has never heard of Christ. Does such an innocent man go to heaven? Well, if he's an innocent man, then he doesn't need a Savior. And obviously he's going to heaven. The problem is the question is flawed. Because Paul's whole point here is that there has never existed an innocent person. Whether they've heard the truth of the gospel, whether they've heard verses in the Bible or not, all are guilty before God, both Jew and Greek. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Do you realize how many people in the world have never heard that message? I had the opportunity last Wednesday to give a gospel presentation to about 20 soccer players and at the end of it I told them to raise their hands if they had never heard anyone tell them they were sinners and 90% of the hands went up. We live in a world that suppresses the wrath of God and without the reality that you are under the wrath of God you can't be saved from the wrath of God. It is the bad news that you have broken God's law that you are deserving of His personal direct and active wrath on you to send you to hell that will ever lead you to Christ. You must give the bad news first. And that's what Paul is doing in this passage. He's given us the purity of God's wrath. It comes from a holy God. He's given to us the people of God's wrath. This is not just general. It's on actual people. And that leads us now to the pattern of God's wrath. Verses 21 through 32. Now according to the principles that we've laid down in verses 18 through 20, Paul's going to just speak in the same way. You already know the direction he's going. We can go way faster now. But now what he does is he uses the depraved Greco-Roman world of his own day as the backdrop of the way that God's pattern of wrath is repeated. And it's generally repeated in three stages of depravity's downward spiral. What does a godless society look like? Well, it looks like a society that has been given up to their own sin. And Paul says that three times. He says, God gave them up, verse 24. God gave them up, verse 26. God gave them up, verse 28. And in all three of these sections, we see the same cycle. 
the revelation of God, God reveals himself. The rejection of God, man replaces God with idols and runs headlong into immorality. And then the reaction of God, what is God's reaction? He hands them over to sin in a vicious cycle that destroys them, not only hell on earth, but hell in eternity. This is a society that is judged by God. Three stages. Note stage one of a godless society. And we'll begin with the same pattern, the revelation of God. Notice the beginning of verse 21, for although they knew God. This amplifies and clarifies what we just laid down in verses 18 through 20, the truth about God, verse 18. That they know the general revelation in verse 20 in His creation, they don't live in light of. And the word for carries the argument along further. For, although they knew God. Gnosko is the Greek word, and there's two ways to define it. It can speak about knowing God intimately or knowing God intellectually. In Genesis 4.1, the Greek Septuagint says that Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived. That's intimate knowledge. But Paul goes on to explain in Romans that we're enemies of God who need to be reconciled, Romans 5.10. So he's still speaking not about salvation knowledge, but the general knowledge of of his existence. In fact, 2 Corinthians 2 speaks about the Spirit imparting an intimate knowledge which the natural man cannot understand. The natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. So this knowledge is not salvation knowledge, it's general knowledge that Paul's still speaking about, but it's enough knowledge to provoke God's wrath. Let me give you a couple of verses. Matthew 5.45, Jesus says, For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. This is the knowledge that there is a good God. Or Acts 14, 17. God did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven, fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to false gods. The result was idolatry. So we move from the revelation of God, notice secondly, to the rejection of God. In verses 21b through verse 23, instead of the knowledge of God leading to the worship of God, they turn to idolatry. This is always part of the cycle. And since gratitude for the Creator of God is at the heart of true worship, Paul says what they didn't do. They did not, the end of verse 21, honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. In other words, because glorifying God is the heart of true worship, they did the opposite. They didn't thank God. And I'm just going to stop at this point to say that so far... Paul has spoken about grace alone, sola gratia, verse 16, the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. He's spoken about sola fide, faith alone, the righteous shall live by faith, verse 17. He's spoken about sola scriptura, scripture alone, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And here in verse 21, he's speaking about soli deo gloria, the glory of God alone. But man, because he suppresses the light of truth, refuses to glorify God, refuses to honor Him, refuses to give thanks, so notice the result, they become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts are darkened. The rest of verse 21. They become futile. This is the rejection of God in one's thinking, which Paul is essentially saying here reveals foolish hearts that are darkened. Feudal minds and souls and bodies leading to the dark world of worshiping idols. Figments of one's imagination. Dark imagination. The word feudal there refers to that which is worthless. But since man by nature is religious, he turns to idolatry. That is why when you turn to the Old Testament, when the prophets speak about Israel 
falling into idolatry. They speak about the prophets prophesying by Baal and going after that which is worthless. That which is worthless. That is the same word that is used here, futile. That which is vain. It is a vain one. Sin does not enlighten one. It darkens their minds from thinking clearly. And the result is abandoning or rejecting the true God or what knowledge they have. In fact, it's a prideful rejecting. Notice verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they become fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. I mean, such describes the folly of idolatry. On the one hand, the gospel is about the great exchange of our sin for Christ's righteousness. Idolatry is the bad exchange of the glory of the immortal God for images. Psalm 106, they exchange the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass? They forgot God, their Savior, and that He had done great things for them in Egypt. Or Jeremiah says, has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? Jeremiah says, this is a change of glory. You have given up the glory of the knowledge of God for a statue. The Syrians said, Jehovah is God of the hills, but He's not God of the valleys. This is idolatry. And notice that phraseology reflecting the language of the creation account. Their images were birds and animals and creeping things. This is the same language and same word order of Genesis 1. That animals become objects of worship in the place of God? Think about the golden calf. Or think about Rome, which had an eagle symbolizing it as a form of pagan worship. And we know that Scripture forbids images, whether representations of God or straight-up idol worship. Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 5, read in the Old Testament. Paul is borrowing from the Old Testament language of pursuing idolatry which is worthless. It is futile. It is the darkening of one's mind. It is not the progress of a culture. It's the decay of a culture. That's what Paul's saying. And I said earlier in my introduction that Paul is quoting from the apocryphal book of wisdom. Here's one segment of that section which you'll be able to see Paul clearly is alluding to. An experienced woodcutter will cut down a tree that is easy to handle. Skillfully he strips off all its bark and then with pleasing workmanship he makes a useful article that serves life's needs. But then he takes a cast off piece, one that is good for nothing, a stick crooked and full of knots. He carves it with care, causes it to resemble a man or he makes it to look like some worthless animal, giving it a coat of red paint and with paint covering every blemish. Then he makes for himself a suitable niche, sets it in the wall, fastens it with iron. He takes care that it does not fall because he knows that it cannot help itself, for it is only an image and and in need of help. Then he prays to it about possessions and his marriage and his children. For health he appeals to a thing that is weak. For life he prays to a thing that is dead. For aid he entreats an object that is thoroughly inexperienced. He asks strength of a thing whose hands have no strength. This is idolatry. The glory of God is exchanged. What is the glory of God? This is His splendor, the total perfection, that He is worthy of worship. Man moves from God's knowledge of the highest worship of God to the lowest worship. Worshiping images that resemble even creeping things, like serpents. 
So from statues to totem poles to the worship of Mother Earth, man who is religious by nature always seems to find a replacement for God. He can't help but be religious. You're either for God or you're against God. You either have the true God or you have a a substitute God, an imitation God. And as Adrian Rogers used to say, anything that we love more, fear more, serve more, or value more than God is an idol. It doesn't have to be an object. It doesn't have to be a physical thing that you hold up or you bow down to. We are hardwired for idolatry. And this is a religion. A religion that rejects the one true God. So the revelation of God and the rejection of God then leads, notice the reaction of God, verse 24. Therefore, this is the first time we see this phrase, God gave them up. Because of man's idolatry. God abandons them to immorality. Notice, He gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Man rejects God, so God rejects man. Sin has consequences. God actively abandons man to his depraved destiny. The text says God gave them up. It's the Greek word paradokin. It's stated three times in this text. And the first consequence is sexual sin, defined there in verse 24. Hearts leading to impurity and dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Begins with lust. The more they lust, the more they want. The more they get, the more they want. And the more they do that, God abandons them to a miserable and vicious cycle of unsatisfactory impurity. They don't honor God or give thanks, so God gives them up to use their bodies in dishonorable ways. A world of Jezebels. Spiritual adultery or idolatry will always lead to physical adultery. Study the religions of the world. Study the cults of the world. And you'll see that they are all sophisticated religious versions of different ways to commit immorality. Idolatry always leads to immorality. Sins against God always leads to sins against our fellow man and with our fellow man. Those are the two tables of the law. And since pagan temples were notorious for sexual activity in Paul's day, remember he's writing from Corinth as he writes the Romans. He probably has the pagan debauchery of the temple cult there on his mind. You know, there was an expression, to live like a Corinthian. That meant to live sexually immoral lifestyles. And the temple, the pagan temple in Corinth had 1,000 prostitute priestesses. Ritual prostitution was rampant in the Greco-Roman society as it is in all cultures that are idolatrous. You want to know whether or not a culture is idolatrous? How much do they talk and think about sex? And in the Old Testament, when God gave someone up or handed someone over, it was always handing them over to their enemies for judgment. God would even give Israel up to their enemies because Israel was established to be the ideal nation-state, the true nation that was one nation under God. And I'll tell you this morning, our culture in the American society is part of the idolatrous sex cult. Pagan idolatry always leads to a confusion regarding the proper use of the human body created in the image of God meant to honor God. And when a society rejects God, they forfeit the means and even the right to know how the body is to function. 
and they begin using it in all sorts of dishonorable ways. Any way that won't honor God is the way that a sexual society will use their body. This is part of having a debased mind. And this is only the first stage of depravity's downward spiral. Notice stage 2 in verses 25 through 27. It's the same pattern. It begins with the revelation of God. Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God. That's the truth that they knew. That's already been established. They exchanged the truth about God. Notice it says, for a lie. And if you have a pen, I want you to write the word the before the word lie. Or put it out in the margin. Because it literally reads, they exchanged the truth about God for the lie. The lie began in the garden when Satan tempted Eve. And since then, Satan has propagated the lie through idolatry, this exchanging of the true God for false gods, the revelation of God, the truth that they knew they exchanged. And now notice the rejection of God, verse 25, describing the move to idolatry this time as they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. You see why we're going so fast through this. It's because Paul is repeating himself in different language. He wants you to get the idea that we are hardwired to idolatry and idolatry always leads to immorality. A false substitution of God. An idol symbolizes the lie of Satan. It promises much, but it's only powerful to deliver misery. And I love this because in the midst of this description of man's sinful and sad idolatry, Paul can't help to break out in worship. He reflects on the fact that God indeed is worthy of worship. And so he says at the end of verse 25, who, referring to the creator that he just mentioned, is blessed forever. Paul blesses God with a doxology of praise. And then he amends his own statement to reinforce the fact that God alone is worthy of worship. And just by Paul speaking about the depravity of man, it's like he can see the glory of God greater against the blackness of man's depravity and he can't help but worship. But this moves us from the revelation of God and the rejection of God Now to the reaction of God, verses 26 and 27, for this reason, namely turning from the true God to idolatry, this time, Paul says, God gave them up to their desires that cause unspeakable, physical, emotional, psychological damage. He calls it here dishonorable passions, and the way he describes it is homosexual relationships, lesbians and gay men. He begins with lesbians, for their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And many commentators have wondered why Paul would mention women first. I think it's probably because we tend to think that women are created by God to be elegant and proper and meek, and yet this shows how depraved the human society against God is. The women lead the way in the sexual rebellion. And if you study American history, which you should, you will learn that the result of the feminist movement is the lesbian movement, where women all last month in Pride Month, carnally celebrating their own judgment, leading the way, chanting. But this happened in Paul's day. You think our society is worse than Paul's day? It looks pretty similar. It looks pretty similar. Any 
culture, any nation, any society that rejects God will lead it to idolatry and then immorality and ultimately to homosexuality. And now he talks about homosexual men, verse 27. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women. They were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. This language Scripture uses to describe homosexual relations is sinful and unacceptable and unnatural. Notice the language again. It's described as contrary to nature. God's creational design and intent is for heterosexual marriages. Even Jesus himself, so many people say, well, Jesus never spoke against homosexuality. Of course he spoke against it. He quoted Genesis in the created order. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, God has joined together. Let not man separate. The man and the woman and and a heterosexual union is not to be separated. But our society has separated it, so now men go with men, women go with women. It's contrary to nature. And notice he he says they gave up natural relations. This reinforces that what they're doing is unnatural. And he says they are shameless acts. That indicates it should have been natural to be shameful of what they're doing. Instead, they're shameless. They're filled with pride. And even steal that word for their carnal celebration. And when a society blurs the distinction of sexes, It doesn't begin on the sexual front. It begins with blurring the roles of men and women. The way God originally created men and women to function in the home, in the church, in society. And so goes the home, so goes the nation. And what happens? Verse 27, receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. Listen, the penalty is not something in addition to same-sex relations. Same-sex relations is the penalty itself. God says, that's what you want. You can have it. You'll never be satisfied. You'll be continually depressed. And at this point, our own society celebrates this. We are guilty of committing a grave error, to borrow the language of verse 27. You realize that homosexuals, no matter how proud they may appear to be, are the most confused, depressed, and suicidal in all of society. They've received more than they could bargain for, and we are complicit because we have coddled homosexuals instead of confronted them in their sin. And the due penalty that God is giving them has an overflow effect on us because His judgment is against our society. The error, to borrow verse 27, of our ways. And there's no use trying to do exegetical gymnastics to get around this. There are all sorts of people that try to explain Paul away here in Romans 1 to say, well, he's not saying... He's only saying that it's wrong for a heterosexual to to commit homosexual acts. That's what some people say. And that leads people to come into the church who don't repent from their homosexuality and they say, well, Paul says we are to do what's unnatural, but for me it is natural to be gay. And part of the blame for God's judgment on our culture seen in celebrating gay pride in June instead of enjoying 
our heterosexual marriages and their byproduct, our children in an old-fashioned American tradition of a barbecue, is because in the 60s it was said by straight people, if it feels good, do it. If it feels good, do it. We're now reaping what we have sown. And when we turn on the TV and we scroll on our phones, we see rainbows everywhere. Homosexuality is not about rainbows and sunshines. It's about God's dark judgment. And now when we see that symbol of a rainbow, we no longer think of God's promise not to flood the earth again. We think of His judgment against a society that has rejected Him and gone to the bottom of the barrel of immorality. The flood of God's judgment. And we're not even to the third stage. Stage 3 of a godless society, verses 28 through 32. Same pattern, revelation, rejection, reaction. Notice the revelation, verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. There it is again. Sin always begins with the failure to acknowledge that God exists and is worthy of worship. And because man continually sins in this same way of idolatry, God just continually gives man over to immorality. But before we get to that third place where Paul says God gave him up, notice the rejection of God, what it looks like in verses 29 through 32. The first stage of depravity began with idolatry, which led to sexual sin. The second stage of depravity began with idolatry that led to homosexual sin. This third stage begins with idolatry, but it leads to societal sin. Verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Now, if you study this passage, you'll understand that this is called an ancient vice list. It's, it's a list for rhetorical effect. The point is not to read it slowly, Okay? The point is not to tediously try to define each word because the force of it is rhetorical. Paul is just piling sin upon sin upon sin. The rapid-fire machine-gun succession of how depravity just piles up itself. In fact, many of these words are synonyms. Some of them have the same beginning prefix. Others end in, in the same way. The words end in the same way. Paul was a wordsmith. He's giving a summary catalog of sin, and he's not even being exhausted. That, exhaustive. That's not the point. So he says they were filled. Notice that language, verse 29. They were filled, not just tainted. They're, it's like they're filled to the brim with depravity, unrighteousness and evil. This is probably a reference to delighting and doing wrong instead of doing right. Covetousness, that's wanting what one cannot have and never being satisfied with what one gets. Malice, that is a synonym with evil. Probably evil intent is behind it. And then he says they are full of envy. Phthano is the Greek word, and then murder, thano. They sound the same, so they're placed side by side, but they also go hand in hand because jealousy or envy often leads to inward or outward murder. And then Paul lists strife, that is fighting. Deceit, that's deception and lies through cunning activity. Maliciousness, that's out of spite wanting to harm others. And then the end of verse 29 begins the third chunk, gossips. That's slandering behind the back. Verse 30, slanderers, that's slandering to the face. So what gossips do secretly, slanderers do openly. Haters of God, Obviously, because of idolatry to immorality pattern. Insolent, that's treating others with contempt, having a superiority complex. And then these next three, haughty, 
boastful inventors of evil. Really, it's that middle three, insolent, haughty, and arrogant. Those are the exaltation of self over God and others. The arrogant are unteachable and unconquerable, like the elites. The boastful are braggers and inventors of evil. Listen, the internet and AI are not evil in and of themselves. But what sort of evil is invented from technology? That's the question. Thomas Edison, the inventor, famed for the light bulb, the phonograph, and the motion picture camera, had an assistant who tried consoling him over the failure to achieve success in a series of experiments. And the assistant said to Edison, it's too bad to do all that work without results. But Edison replied by saying, oh, we have lots of results. We know 700 things that won't work. But such is the exact picture of depraved man. Never exhausted, no matter how much he sins and how much he fails to be satisfied, he no sooner gets to work again, becoming an inventor of something else that is evil, plunging headlong and pridefully so into more wickedness. And then notice disobedience to parents. You know, God even abandons children because of unrepentance. Proverbs 20.20, If one curses his father or his mother, his lamp will be put out in utter darkness. Verse 31 These last four words create assonance. That is, they have the same Greek prefix at the beginning, but because it's hard to translate into the Greek, and and from the Greek into the English, the English has the same ending to it. So it's supposed to have a rhetorical effect. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. I mean, Paul is just piling word upon word upon word. Foolish actually means stupid. Faithless means not true to covenants or contracts. That's a... Definitely something that marks our society. Heartless, that's the loss of natural love, abortion, and fanticide. And ruthless, willing to act on the heartless feelings with merciless acts of unspeakable evil. Paul ends it with foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. This is a society that God has given up. Verse 32 summarizes all of it. Here it is again. Though they know God's righteous decree... They have an awareness of God, but this time the awareness is of God's righteous decree. That is His judicial abandonment. They know God has abandoned them and that those who practice such things deserve to die. Yet, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The only thing worse than committing wickedness is becoming so is by becoming so complicit in sin that you encourage and applaud and give approval to sinners that do it. If it feels good, do it. If you want it, go for it. Live your own life. Your body, your choice. Pride month. Total depravity. That revelation of God and rejection of God leads to the reaction of God. It's tucked away back the second half of verse 28, the third time that Paul says God gave them up. And he says God gave them up. Here's God's reaction. Verse 24, God gave them up. Verse 26, God gave them up. Verse 28, God gave them up. Here in verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Calling evil good and good evil. With no way out. Divine abandonment. This is the downward spiral of depravity. God's punishment on a godless society, 
He gives them over to their sin. You want it? Then go at it. Go get it. Have all you want. This is the dread of God's wrath. There is a certain species of ants in Africa that builds its nests deep in the subterranean tunnels where its young and its queen live. And although they may be great distances from the nest looking for food, the worker ants of this particular species are all able to sense when the queen is being attacked. And when she is attacked, even though they're a far distance away, they become extremely agitated and nervous and even uncoordinated. And if she is killed, they become frantic and rush around aimlessly until they die. This is an illustration of fallen man. We're like little ants. In our sinful rebellion, we cannot function apart from God's lordship, his kingship over us. So when we run far enough away in our depravity, we are destined for nothing but more depravity and more wrath. That's the dread of God's judgment. You remember there's a context to this. The dread of God's wrath is the bad news. The only thing that can mitigate that, the only thing that can offer a solution to that is the good news of the righteousness of God. The just shall live by faith. Verse 17. We've talked a lot about Luther. We'll close speaking about him this morning. We spoke about Luther and his deliverance from the dark dungeon of his bondage to sin. You do realize that that was also a deliverance from bondage to the law as well. Luther was only brought into the beautiful sunlight of God's grace when he understood the gospel. He went from an expert of the law, being in terror of God's wrath, to an expert in God's grace, understanding that by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, one could be saved. He went from a hater of God to a lover of God. His slavery to the law was an undue focus on himself and his own performance, and this only made the monastery that he lived in darker, blocking the sunlight of God's grace in the gospel. But when he heard God's voice in Romans 1.17, the righteous shall live by faith, the doors of paradise swung open, his chains fell off, his heart was free. He saw the light of God's mercy in Christ. And listen, he saw this reality. He saw the reality of Jesus Christ, the God-man, living an obedient life he could never live, and then dying on a cross, absorbing the full fury and force of divine wrath for him. And it was that realization of his own sin, his own unworthiness, his own inability to ever obey the law perfectly, and the mercy and grace that was in Christ that led him to a place of freedom where he was set free. That's the good news of the gospel. You can be set free from the bondage that you're under to the law of God, to sin, to depravity, to wrath, and be given a new life. By the grace of God, through Jesus Christ. Paul always comes back to the gospel. Does he talk about the law? You better bet he does. Does he talk about the judgment of God? You better believe he does. But he does that not as an end in and of itself, but a means to the end. Because when the sinner acknowledges his unworthiness, his inability to obey God, and his utter desire to do everything that dishonors God, 
It is that reality that the Spirit uses to birth us anew into the kingdom of God where we become repenters and we turn from the direction we're going and we turn to God to honor Him, to love Him, to worship Him, to praise Him, to live for Him as a living sacrifice. It's the power of the gospel. But our society has had unleashed against it the dread of God's wrath and it's only the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom that will lead sinners to repentance that will salvage any any vestiges of a Christian society. That ought to be our prayer. That ought to be our heart's desire. And we ought to tell everyone we know about this Christ that we love who has changed our lives, delivering us from His wrath through the grace of God in Christ. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.